All right, Joshua chapter 6. Let me um, just quickly orient ourselves. Um, We last left off in chapter 5. Here's our trusty map that we've been working with for the past couple of weeks. This will probably be the last time I show this. You you have uh, probably gotten sick of it. But just to orient ourselves, as the Jewish people make their way up from Egypt after 400 years of slavery, they come through the Sinai Peninsula. They come underneath the south of the Dead Sea, and they come then to the uh, east of the Jordan River, where they will camp at a place called Shittim, uh, also translated Acacia Grove. And they will wait there until such time that God says, now cross the Jordan River. God parts the Jordan River. He tells the priest, you dip your foot, your, your feet into the Jordan River water first, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And then God rolls back the Jordan River 16 miles to the north in the city of Adam. And the Jewish people cross over to a small area called Gilgal, where, where they will camp. This will serve to be the base of operation because their ultimate mission that God is going to call them to take is the city of Jericho, just another two or three miles from Gilgal. It'll be at Gilgal here that we read in chapter 5, the people consecrate themselves. Uh, They get their hearts right with God. Consecration uh, is more important uh, before uh, the actual uh, war. And so uh, God calls them to circumcise all the males because for the 40 years in the wilderness wanderings, they had not practiced that covenant of circumcision. They also practiced the feast of Passover. They celebrate the Lord. They, they get their hearts right. Um, and it is here at Gilgal that the Bible says near the end of chapter uh, 5, Uh, In verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And that's actually the translation for the city of Gilgal. Gilgal means to roll, to roll away. It was at this place where God then, um, in a a very personal way, uh, consecrated the people, gathered them to himself. And those 400 years of slavery said, I'm rolling away your approach. Now you are a people belonging to me. You are a people in the land that I have given on oath to your forefathers. And so this day forward, uh, the people of Israel are going to occupy the land that God had originally sworn on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as they come into the land, uh, it is being occupied here in Jericho. Uh, by people who uh, don't love the Lord, serve the Lord, worship the Lord. They are pagan people. Uh, I will tell you in advance, chapter 6 is a bit of a difficult chapter when you think about what happens to the people of Jericho, but I'm going to try to give you know a, a, a biblical understanding to what happens with the ethical dilemma of war. Uh, but there's some serious stuff that happens here, and, uh, and we need to understand why it happens. And uh, we need to understand the character of God in the midst of what is happening here. And so let me read with you from chapter 6. I'm just going to read the first five verses. I hope to get through the whole chapter, Lord willing, tonight. But the first five verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll start to dig out this chapter together. So Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass 
when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So let's pause there. Those are the instructions that God gives to Joshua, and he's going to pass these instructions on to the people. We're going to see it play out here in chapter 6, but let's first pause there and pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word tonight, and we pray as we open up our Bibles here to Joshua 6 that you will help us to understand uh, more about your character, your nature, your ultimate purpose and power, your plans for us, Lord, and we just thank you that you have revealed yourself through the pages of Scripture. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Well, you'll notice here that verse 1 says Jericho was securely shut up. It was fortified, and it says because of the children of Israel. You see, the reputation of God and the reputation of God's people had preceded them. And the people who lived within Jericho, these pagan idolatrous people, they were not Jews. These were pagan idolatrous people. They had already heard about God. They had already heard about God's people. And so they had fortified themselves within the city of Jericho. Now, Jericho is the oldest continuously occupied city in the world. And um, I first went there about 22 years ago and um, saw for myself some of the ruins that we're reading about right here. Uh, we don't typically go into Jericho anymore. It, is, uh, it has been turned over to the Palestinians, and as a result, sometimes they're not all that favorable to our Jewish tour guides. They don't mind Americans coming in, but they don't particularly like our Jewish tour guides. So, once again, there's a little bit of conflict where we can go and where we can't go. Uh, but Jericho, based on archaeological digs and discoveries, has uh, been indeed, uh, there's an ancient tell, an ancient part of the city of Jericho, and then there's a more modern uh, part of Jericho. But the ancient city of Jericho was built in such a way, based on different archaeological digs that were conducted in the early 1930s and the 1950s, and then again as recently as 1997, uh, by German archaeologists and British archaeologists, uh, that it was determined that Jericho, the ancient city of Jericho, actually had a double wall fortification. And here is kind of, it's kind of a blurry, it's not the best picture, but this is kind of an artist's rendering of like a cross section of the ancient city of Jericho, where you have a lower wall, and then you have this uh, dirt embankment, and then you have an upper wall. And what they discovered when they uh, began to uncover these ancient walls uh, was that this, the lower part, the lower wall, which uh, is shaded kind of in tan, the, there's, the lower wall is like you can see in two different uh, stages. The, the lower stage in tan was about 12 to 15 feet high. And then on top of that was a mud brick wall that was six feet thick and about another 20 to 26 feet high for a total height, just the lower wall at the bottom end of the embankment, of about 32 to 41 feet. So that was the first wall. Then they had this dirt embankment that they discovered, and then there was another similar mud brick wall above that. And that surrounded, the upper wall surrounded the main living area of the, the town of Jericho. And the main living area of the town of Jericho was about only six acres. And then they discovered that along the embankment between the two walls 
were other uh, homes. And they believed that along the embankment lived the poorer people. You only get one wall if you're poor. Uh, the wealthier people could live within the second wall. And the outer embankment area was about another three to four acres. So you had a total of about 10 acres. That was the whole size of the city of Jericho. Now, our campus here is on 30 acres. So it's only about a third of our whole campus. Now, check this out. Archaeologists, they used a rule of thumb to determine how many people lived within a certain geographical area. And when it came to towns and fortified cities like Jericho, people lived in small little walled uh, homes, usually just one-room homes, and they were built on top of each other, kind of like townhomes. A lot of times they would share one wall with the outside wall of the city. And so the rule of thumb that archaeologists use for ancient cities like Jericho is, are you ready? 200 people per acre. 200 people per acre. Those of you in Western Lowndes, you're like, we got three acres, three to five acres. Good for you. <laughs> but if you lived in this day, you'd be living with 200 people on one acre. If you have a three acre plot today, there'd be 600 people living in your backyard. So they estimate that within 10 acres, there was about 2,000 people who lived within the city of Jericho. And it's walled, double walled, with this steep embankment. So they have fortified themselves now. They are up and they are tight and they are secure because of the children of Israel. And within these instructions here, God says some things that, you know, when we look at this, we go, this is an interesting military tactic. You, you're called to take the city of Jericho, but the instructions here teach us a few things here. Uh, they are to march around the city once for six successive days. Then they are to march around the city seven times on the seventh day. And they are to be led in a certain procession. There is, uh, and, and it'll tell us as we keep reading, there are armed men in front, and then behind them are seven priests with ram's horns, and then behind them are the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and then behind them is the rear guard and the people. So there, there's this progression that God says, this is the way I want you to march. This is what I want you to do. And I want you to go and I want you to take this approach. And, and so here they go. These are the instructions here. And, and there are a couple of things here that stand out to me. And I just want to share four quick points before we read through the rest of the text. By the way, here's the rest of the city. When you look at what it might've looked like, um, before I get to these four points, with, within these, you know, homes uh, built compactly between these, these two walls. And by the way, what they discovered when they noticed the walls, these mud brick walls had fallen, they fell outward. Okay, that's significant, because usually if you're, if you're penetrating a walled city, you're going to push the walls in. Well, the walls fell outward, and they noticed that the, that the uh, mud bricks, as they fell outward, uh, created a natural ramp so that the Israelites could walk right into the city. Not, not a single shot or arrow was fired. I mean, they went in and they took the city and, uh, and, and God made it all possible. But there are a couple of things here that stand out to me. One is this, for those of you taking notes, what might be too hard for you is never too hard for God. You know, this was a fortified city with double high walls and a steep embankment between the two walls. It says there in verse one, none went out and none came in. This was otherwise impossible 
for the Israelites to conquer. But nothing is too difficult for God. And I love the verse in Jeremiah 32, 17. It says, Ah, Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. The one who created the universe can do great and mighty things. Despite how hard something might look for us, it's never too hard for God. The other thing that I think is interesting in this story that is a good lesson for us is number two, battles are best fought with prayer and faith. This military campaign is not the typical way that warfare was conducted, marching around a city and blowing trumpets and then shouting at the end of it all. What's that going to do? And you might be inclined at times to think prayer and faith in God. What's that going to do? But what this method did for them, as prayer and faith does for us, is that we might see the mighty hand of God at work. If their brute strength and their military, you know, clever tactics produced for themselves their victory, then they would have thought that they were the ones who accomplished it. But because God uses this otherwise unconventional method of taking a city, it's a way that reinforces for us the importance of, okay, we're going to rely on God, we're going to trust God, and we're going to see Him do His mighty work. There will be situations in our lives, and some of you might be going through something like I'm describing now, where God calls us to, or He ends up putting, in a, putting us in a position where we have to be completely dependent upon Him so that we can see His mighty hand at work and not think that we were the ones who accomplished this. You know, you know the way it usually works is that human nature, we're, we're prone to want to jump in and fix something. What we tend to do when we don't follow the Lord's lead and bathe it with prayer and trust Him is we tend to get in there, we make a mess of it, and then we ask God to fix it. How many of you can relate to what I just said? All right. It's typical. It's what we do. We're like, okay, God, I got this. And then we rush in, we try to fix it, we make a mess of it, and then we're like, okay, God, I don't got this. How about you pray? Uh, I mean, how about I pray and ask you to fix it? And, and that's what we end up doing. But it's a reminder to us when he says, listen, I just want you to march around the city. This seems silly, doesn't it? I want you to walk around this city six times, seventh time, do it seven times. I want you to, you know, be blowing the trumpets, and I want you to be shouting at the last of the seven of the seven times, and, and, and yet this is what God does, and this is how God accomplishes his purpose. It's a very hard thing for us to do to really get out of the way and let God do his work, but it will only be then that he is most glorified. And it will only be then that we can witness the mighty hand of God. The other thing I think is important here that we're going to see is number three, to keep your eyes on the Lord. There's a very unusual thing that happens here in this story, and it is the fact that God instructs Joshua to tell the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant into this procession of marching around the city. The Ark of the Covenant was typically not used in any kind of military campaign. But yet in this particular case, God says, I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant and, and I want you to make the Ark of the Covenant central to 
uh, to, this, to this campaign of taking the city. Now, uh, here's again just an artist's rendering of the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They hoisted it on their shoulders using these staffs that would pass through rings on the side of the Ark. The size of the Ark was three and three quarter feet by two and a quarter feet by two and a quarter feet. The lid was made of solid gold with gold cherubim, these angels on top facing each other, wings outstretched. It was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Inside the box were articles of Israel's history, the Ten Commandments, Arid's budding staff, a sample of the manna. And it tells us in Psalm 80 verse 1 and again in Psalm 99 verse 1 that God sits enthroned between the cherubim. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred article that symbolized the very presence of God. And it is a reminder when you think about how that was an important role in this procession in taking Jericho, that it was centered among the people so that they could always remember where to cast their gaze. They were to fix their eyes on the Ark of the Covenant, which was a reminder of the very presence of God. It is so vital that we never forget that God is in the midst of whatever we're going through, and we have to keep our focus on Him and not get our eyes off of Him. It's so easy to get our eyes on everything else except Him. And God says to Joshua, I want you to put the Ark of the Covenant right in the midst of the people so that when they're marching, they can always remember, I'm with them and I'm in the midst of what they're doing here. And six days they marched silently around the city here. It took great courage and endurance. And then I love the last point, number four, is that there's instruction here to worship while you wait. Because he says to them on the seventh day, I want you to shout. I want you to shout. I want you to be silent for the first six days, but on the seventh day, on the seventh time around, I want you to shout. And then the walls fell. And they didn't fall because they shouted loud enough to cause, you know, some kind of an earthquake, all right? Some liberal theologians actually say that. That's ridiculous. They shouted as a voice of victory before the victory happened. There's something to be said about worshiping while we wait. You know, when we worship before we get the victory, we are worshiping about the faithfulness of God. When we worship after we get the victory, we're worshiping in thankfulness to God. But there's something to be said about praising Him while we wait, even before we see the results. Why? Because God is worthy of our praise. You know, I'm reminded in Acts chapter 16, remember when Paul and Silas were thrown into prison because um, they were in Philippi and they were arrested for the gospel. They're put in prison. And in Acts 16, it says, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And I I just love that picture because they're in you know, very difficult situation, but they didn't wait to sing the hymns after God opened the prison doors. They sang before God did that. And then it says in Acts 16, an earthquake came and God opened the prison doors. There's something wonderful that happens when we worship God even before we see the results because he's worthy of our praise. Now, on to the chapter itself. Besides those quick four points, I just wanted to kind of throw out there. Um, It's interesting here in verse 4, the number of times that the number 7 is mentioned. 
and seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, but the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now, the trumpets here are the ram's horns, it specifically says there, and we're talking in Hebrew, the shofar. So this, I, I bought this shofar in Israel, my first trip to Israel, 24 years ago. I was in the Arab market and, uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, the guy was selling them. And I said, how much? And he says, $250. I said, no way. $250. Now, th- uh, what I love when I go to Israel is they actually expect you uh, to barter. And if you don't, they're insulted. You know, I wish I could, you know, go into Target and say, I ain't paying this. You bring your price down now or I'm walking out. Well, that's the way you do it in Israel. You negotiate like this. Am I right? Am I right? Yes, I am right, Iman. And so I went and he said, $250. I said, no, not $250. I said, uh, $100. He said, no, not $100. And I said, okay, I'm walking. And I walked out. And as soon as I turned the corner, he comes chasing after me. Sir, sir, okay, $100. I said, no, 50 now. <laughs> he said, all right, 50. But this is actually, this is just a ram's horn. This is exactly what it is. There's not, this is, you know, it used to be like this on some ram before, <laughs> before God took it to heaven. But, uh, you know, when I brought this home we, and our dog was still living, my dog thought this was a giant chew stick. She loved this. She went crazy when she saw this. But this is what a shofar is. This is a ram's horn. Now, I'm gonna, I haven't blown this thing in years, but I'm going to try to do the best I can because this is what they were doing. The priests would gather these seven priests with these ram's horns, and then they were just sounding this blast. Yeah, here we go. There you go. That's the show for the day. Shofar, show good. All right, anyway. So, so that's a shofar. That's what the priests would do. Little show and tell today in first grade. You're welcome. <laughs> Verse 6. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. Okay, so you have the armed men in front of the ark. And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. So we had the ark of the, of, of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. And then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. Verse 12, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And then seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once 
and returned to the camp. And so they did six days. So this, this is the cycle. This is the order. This is what they are to do. You know, I love the way Joshua says to the people, don't say a word. Don't shout until I tell you to shout. I want you to go in complete silence. I wonder how many of them were real, had a hard time doing that. You know, I mean, think about it. this is like, you know, a couple million people going around, you know, 10, 10 acres and the temptation to be like, yeah, what's going on up front? You know, shh, quiet. They weren't to say a thing. Verse 15, but it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. By the way, the number seven in the Bible is usually a number that signifies completion or perfection. And it says the rest of verse 15, on that day only, on that seventh day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. I'll talk a little bit more when we get a couple verses further. But notice, only Rahab, the harlot, shall live. She and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And remember this story, if you were with us back in chapter 2. Joshua dispatches two spies to go on like a recon mission into Jericho before they actually take the city. Those two spies go to the house of Rahab, or in Hebrew, her name is pronounced with a V at the end, Rahav. And they find lodging there. And, you know, the house of a prostitute is usually Grand Central Station. And so there's, it, in the day, it was Instagram location, right? I mean, it's like, it's like uh, TikTok. I mean, that, that's where people are exchanging a lot of information. And so the spies are learning a lot of things there. They didn't go there with ulterior motives. But Rahab, Rahab gives them lodging and protects them, and she actually lies on their behalf so they won't die. We talked about that and and the ethical dilemma with that back in chapter 2. But here she is, someone who is rescued. Why? Because of her testimony and her faith. Now, I want to take you back to chapter 2 just to read this much of what she said. Back in chapter 2, verse 8 to 13. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them, that is, to the spies, on the roof, and said to the men, verse 9, I know that the Lord, this is Yahweh, this is, she understands the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Okay, this is a profound thing here. She's a Gentile, heathen prostitute. Keep that in mind. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard, we know the testimony, how the Lord, how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any and anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, let me, let me pause there. How did she know this? You see, because God had revealed it to them. God had made himself known. The manifestation of his testimony had already gone to this whole town such that Rahab here is giving this amazing declaration of faith. 
And she adds here, verse 12, Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, it's chesed in Hebrew, mercy, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that have, and deliver our lives from death. Go back to chapter 6, your attention here. By Rahab's own testimony, she's indicating that the whole people of Jericho knew about the true identity of God, that he was the Lord God of heaven and earth. And because she made a personal declaration and asked for mercy, she received mercy. She exercised her faith in the living God. This Gentile heathen prostitute believed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the two spies made a a covenant with her, made a pact with her. Tie this scarlet cord, this red cord, it's a type of a picture of the blood of Christ, you tie this to your window, and when we come back, we will spare you and your family. So now back here in chapter 6, they're going to be true to their word. Everybody's going to be destroyed except Rahab and her family, which now kind of dovetails into this whole ethical dilemma of war. So let me just say this much. When you realize what Rahab is saying and how she herself appealed to the mercy of God, and put faith and trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and spoke thus on behalf of everybody that we know, but only she was willing to make this declaration of faith, the people are culpable. They are accountable. When you see here in a couple more verses that God says, I want you to go in and take the city, and the the Israelites go in with a sword, and they slaughter everybody, don't walk away from this story and think, this is a brutal God, I can't believe that he's doing this. We have to understand something about the character and nature of God. By the way, he's the same God through Old Testament and New Testament. Some people look at the New Testament like, I like that God. You know, he's Father God. They look at the Old Testament and go, I don't like that God. He's the Godfather. Okay, wait. (laughs) He's the same God. And he exercises mercy when anyone calls upon his name. That's Old Testament. That's New Testament. He exercises mercy when anyone calls on his name. But he will hold us to account when we thumb our nose at him. The people of Jericho knew who he was and did nothing except Rahab and this family. And for that reason, she was spared. It's the same truth in Genesis when we look about the story of Noah and his family and the ark, the boat that was, that was crafted in order to rescue whoever wanted to be saved. And the Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But how many got saved as a result of his ministry? Only eight. He and his own family. That was it. The rest of the people thumbed their nose at God and they suffered the consequences. This is the way it goes. There is a righteous, holy God who demands righteousness and holiness. Well, how can we be righteous and holy enough for a righteous and holy God? We can't. Thus, he offers his son as an expression of his mercy that through faith in him we might be saved. But even before his son was revealed, God, who is infinite in mercy, has mercy on a Gentile, heathen, prostitute to save her, to save her, just like he has expressed his mercy for every single one of us who call upon the name of the Lord today. We are Rahab. And thus Rahab is going to get saved here. And you have not heard the end of Rahab, because if you know your Bibles, you know that she's mentioned three times in the New Testament. The first time she appears is in Matthew chapter 1. 
Because when Rahab is rescued from this pagan city, she marries a guy by the name of Salmon, a Jew. She's a Gentile. She marries this Jewish guy named Salmon. They have a son together, Boaz. Boaz marries a lady in the Bible that you know named Ruth. Together they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. This Gentile, heathen prostitute is in the genealogical record that leads up to Jesus Christ. It's an amazing story of redemption. How this prostitute who was not Jewish and had had been living her whole life in sin and distant from God in one moment of declaring her faith in the Lord God is received by God with mercy and forgiveness. She is ushered in to the Jewish people. She becomes a proselyte to Judaism, marries Salmon, produces a son who produces a son who produces a son. She's the great, great grandmother of King David. And the line of David to the Messiah Jesus. It's a beautiful story of redemption. She's mentioned again in Hebrews 11. Verse 31, in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Hall of Faith, she's mentioned again in James 2.25, as a woman who exercised faith and works to show by her works that she did believe that God is God. So when you read this story, yes, does it have this, this difficult whole section here about the slaughtering of people? Yes, that, that is, that's hard to read. But we have to understand in the big picture of righteousness and justice and mercy that there is mercy for all who will turn. But there were people here who knew just as Rahab did and said, no, thank you. And when we exercise that choice, as sad as it is to say, no, thank you to God, we will suffer the consequences for that. So please, it is better to be on the side of mercy and to ask for mercy and forgiveness than to thumb a nose at God. Because there are consequences that will result. And thankfully, you know, here we are, even more recipients of His grace, this side of the cross. Let's read through the rest of the chapter here. And so in verse 18, And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. Okay, this particular Hebrew word is haram. Uh, in, in Arabic, it's very similar, haram, something that is forbidden. Um, all the articles within the city of Jericho were to be untouched except for the silver, the gold, and the bronze, and that was going to be taken into the future uh, tabernacle. But everything else was to be left there. They're not to plunder this city. This is, this is accursed. You know, it's interesting. When archaeologists um, discovered the ancient ruins of Jericho, they found... Um, barrels and barrels of grain that was untouched. Normally, when any invading army captures a city, you're going to confiscate all the grain. So for it to be left there shows it's evidence of what the Bible is saying here. They didn't touch any of the stuff. They didn't touch any of the stuff. It was accursed. Lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Verse 19, but all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated. The Hebrew word is chadesh, meaning holy or sacred, to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And so the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. 
And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. And then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep, and donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. That's interesting, by the way. This is one other point in the archaeological discovery. In 1907 and 1909, when the Germans did an archaeological dig there at Jericho, they found one small portion on the northern wall that did not fall with the rest of the whole walls of the city. And it is consistent with, although we don't know for sure if it was Rahab's house, it's consistent with the story because they actually go into her house. If everything had been leveled, because in chapter 2 it tells us that her house was part of the city walls. So if the walls had fallen, her house would have crumbled. But there's this one section on the northern part of the city walls that had not crumbled. And so verse 23, and the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city. They burned the city, interestingly, too. One other point from archaeologists when they were digging out the site, they reached a level where they found a layer of burned ash and debris about one meter, three feet feet thick. Archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon, she was um, in the 1950s, discovered this. She's a British archaeologist, a three-foot level of ash. It's all consistent with the Bible. They burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord. Who rises up and builds this city Jericho, he shall lay its foundation with, its, with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. I just want to comment on that previous verse. Joshua curses the city. And he said, if anyone rebuilds this, it'll be at the cost of his firstborn. If he lays the gates, it'll be cost, the cost of a secondborn. And 500 years later, you can write in the margin of your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34, it came to pass. Tragically, in 1 Kings 16, verse 34, it says, In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn. Literally, it means at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, or literally at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua the prophet, the son of Nun. That's 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 34. About 500 years later, what Joshua pronounced came to pass because God never wanted this ancient city to be rebuilt. And today, it still lies in ruins. Again, the more modern part of Jericho is next to it. But this ancient tell serves as a reminder of the mighty hand of God. And thankfully, he is also 
a merciful God who saves Rahab's just like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are mighty and powerful, that you go before us in ways that we cannot do things ourselves. And we rely on your strength and on your power, Lord, to fight our battles, to do things that are too hard for us, because nothing is too difficult for you. But we also thank you that you are not only a mighty God, but you are a merciful God. And you spare sinners like us. You had mercy on a pagan Gentile prostitute. And you not only saved her, but you engrafted her into the family And she became the great-great-grandmother of King David, leading up eventually to the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God who redeems broken people. You can take our sinful lives and you can forgive us and be merciful to us and still use us for your glory. Thank you for being a merciful, loving God. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you first loved us, expressing your love on a cross 2,000 years ago through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen.